You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim Dalrasso, and I'm very happy today to be bringing you something that I think is innovative uh, and very interesting. And I have with me someone that I've known for some time. I consider a friend and colleague, and that's Dr. Raja Sivamani. And he practices at Pacific Skin Institute in Sacramento, California, where he does medical dermatology and runs a clinical research center. He's a board-certified dermatologist, extremely well-trained, and a very open-minded thinker. That's why I really like talking to him. He also runs the Integrative Dermatology Symposium through Learn Skin, which has been consistently gaining more steam and more interest in dermatology. So it's a pleasure to have you here today, Raja. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with you as well, Jim. So let's start by definitions. So before we can get into details, it's important to know, get everybody on the same page of what we're talking about. So what is integrative dermatology? What does that mean? You know, I'm so happy you're asking this question because there's been a lot of terms that have been used historically, whether it's conventional medicine, Western medicine, and then you, uh, on the other side, you have things like alternative medicine or complementary medicine. But I think the approach now has been to take all of the evidence that's out there, whatever way we can to try to apply that to the patient. And we've got this term now that's called integrative. And so integrative dermatology just means that you're applying principles from all perspectives, including pharmaceuticals, maybe diet, nutrition, mind, body, supplements, botanicals, probiotics, you take that all together. And I know one of the things people used to say is, why don't we just call it medicine? I really hope we get there. But right now we're calling it integrative medicine to kind of just signify that we're going to be using more than just the standard Western conventional approaches. Well, I would say that maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, I didn't see much in practice where patients had in their mindset even thinking about a lot of these things. Some people did, but it's not uncommon now for people to show you a list of things or ask you about things that have to do with supplements or, you know, in in an arena where we don't get a lot of information as dermatologists or certainly don't know where to go to find out is the research solid or it just is it just smoke and mirrors? We can do that with the pharmaceutical products. We get bombarded <laughs> with that information. But how do I find out if such a, a such and such a supplement or such and such a diet really has scientific merit? You're obviously doing that. You know, um, another really uh, great point because I think this is a really important point of discussion. You know, when it comes to uh, the 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 general knowledge base around or like the request for more information around their health you know whether it be hey how's my diet impacting this or hey is it some food that i'm eating or how do i deal with my stress i think the advent of the internet really changed things because i think people are able to communicate much more easily with each other and folks that used to think about this in one pocket now can just spread that you know whether it's facebook or TikTok or Instagram, hopefully TikTok's not banned, but we'll see. Or, you know, whatever it is that's out there blogging. I think that really put the uh, information at everyone's fingertips much more easily. And then when it comes to- But how do we know? I mean, how do we know it's not just, it's so easy for people. There's no like peer review to get into this. So it's easy (laughs) for people to be saying something. How do we know that, how is it verified? Yeah. So the verification process, I think, 
is not too different from say, um, it, it really you have to look in the medical literature. I mean, that's where you have to start and you have to look at what is being published. Uh, and the good news is that a lot of these areas, whether it be nutrition or whatnot, it's not new information. And that's the funny thing, Jim, is that a lot of these publications have been sitting there, like departments of nutrition have been doing nutritional research for years, you know, over at University of California, Davis, where I'm faculty as well, the department of nutrition there is really strong. And they've been looking at things like cardiovascular risk from, you know, diets or whether it's uh, other aspects of health. And so, yeah, we have to look in the medical literature to find those pockets of um, peer reviewed publications. And then the second thing I want to make a comment about, and I think people have been talking about this much more is who's putting out the information that you're reading in a blog or who's putting out the information on social media? Is it a board certified dermatologist? Is it someone that is already well-trained in understanding how the sciences should be? Or is it your local, you know, um, beauty, I would say educator, that's just kind of giving you their opinion. I think you have to really look at that, but I start with the medical literature. And also we have, I think it's in our best interest to start running these high quality studies as well and doing the best we can with that. So I want to get smarter. I want to become Raja Sivamani when I grow up. Okay. <laughs> so are there any particular journals or places I should be looking at in the medical literature? Because we don't see a lot of this in the standard literature that we're reading in dermatology. You know, one of the advantages of say PubMed, for example, if you go to PubMed, it's right there at your fingertips to, you can put in any search term and then you can even like find across many different journals that are peer reviewed that'll come up. Um, you know, so when we say particular journals where there's a journal of integrative, um, I would say medicine, uh, there's actually, there's a few integrative me medical journals, Journal of Complementary and Integrative Health is another one. But even if you look at the JAD, they, they will publish uh, certain things that are going to be integrative. Um, the, the JAMA Derm, the British Journal of Dermatology is much more open to publishing these sorts of publications. I actually find that they will uh, push the envelope on things like nutrition or cosmeceuticals, where you have topical ingredients that may be, you know, maybe phytochemically based. So, um, but I go online and here's a little trick. If you go to Google and you put in any search term and then you tack on NCBI at the end of it, Google is really smart. They're almost smarter than PubMed at finding the journal articles that you want. Uh, so, and maybe pretty soon chat GPT will just give you all the answers. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, well let, let, let's, let's take time on that, right? <laughs> we, we, uh, you know, it, it, it has some potential to be, to be a value, but there are human beings involved. So with human nature, we don't know what, what way it's going to go. Oh, no, absolutely. Tongue in cheek. That's true of everything, right? <laughs> right. But uh, I, I get it. But that's, that's a good tip about the NCBI. I'm going to, uh, I jotted that down here, right? But I know I could always call you if I have a question, which I appreciate. <laughs> now let's get into some nitty gritty. Uh, what are some examples? So I wanna, I'm going to ask you a couple of different questions here. What are situations that you're seeing that uh, uh, the first example I'll give you is let's say you really believe a patient needs to go a certain medical therapy route or has an option of a few of them. And that person is really pushing back on using drugs or something synthetic. I want you know, and, but you believe as you're, bringing everything together as their physician, that this is something I really think is your in your best interest. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that with the patient? 
Well, um, first of all, like, so I, outside of Western medicine, I actually learned Ayurvedic medicine, which is uh, a whole field of thinking about balance and balance and looking at things like diet and um, mind, body and whatnot comes out of the traditional medicine in India, but it's pretty sophisticated. One of the things I tell people is that, you know, when patients come in, um, they want to know that you are actually thinking about them holistically. It's not that they're against, say, a biologic or against uh, some sort of pharmaceutical. I think what they want to know is that you're going to actually talk to them about beyond that. And then if you really think that's the way to go, uh, uh, Jim, I'll tell you, I have a lot of patients that are naturopathic doctors. I have a lot of patients that come in that come in saying, hey, I want to get to the root cause. And I have to explain to them when people say root cause, the biochemical pathways are part of that root cause. The genetic predispositions are part of that root cause. And so I will give them a quick uh, conversation around, you know, let's talk about atopic dermatitis as an example. They'll come in and say, doc, I think it's got to be my diet. And I'll take them through the evidence and say, you know, there's not one thing in your diet that's been shown to be true for everybody. But, you know, for example, do you wear wool? If you wear wool, let's pull that away because that's something that you're putting on externally. How about are you uh, are you taking a food diary and do you notice flares the day after? Well, maybe you can cut those foods out. But here, check this out. Your body surface area is 50%. You're miserable. We need to get your symptoms better and we can work on management later on. Otherwise, it's like you're trying to climb up the waterfall by going up the water. Like, let's take the pathway to get to the top. And so I tell them you might need a biologic and, you know, I have a lot of my naturopathic doctor patients that are on biologics because they get it and, and they're very open to it and they're very happy with it because then we can work on the other lifestyle stuff. You know, your skin is on fire right now. Let me put the fire out and then, exactly. we, can, <laughs> then we can work on keeping the embers, embers from restarting another fire. You yeah, know, make, make, you know wetting, wetting the wood a little bit during a raging fire doesn't do much because that water's evaporating <laughs> right. before it hits the, hits the fire, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> so are there situations, I'm going to give you some example. Let's say you're trying to treat a patient with acne and, you know, they come in and I, I actually find that the fact that I ask patients up front tell me about your diet, yeah. they're taken aback because they're not used to Absolutely. most physicians addressing that because we didn't know what to do about it. But just because we don't know exactly what to do doesn't mean we should be afraid, right? We, we just do the best with what we can work with. And th it kind of warms up the conversation rather than just say, oh, put this medicine on in the morning, put this on at night. Because every, every dermatologist they go to can pretty much pick one from column A and one from column B. It's that extra. So are there situations when patients come in with certain disease states where you say they're on a steadfast diet, they're, they're vegan or they're gluten-free or, what, or whatever you know is out there, that you see you have to intervene and say, okay, I see that? but you need to be careful about also doing this or a certain situation where that diet may actually be worse for them. Are yeah. there any common examples of that that you run into? Yeah, you know, I think I think your example is a really great one. I think we come from a place of um, a little bit of fear as physicians because we say, hey, if it's not bad for you, go ahead and do it. But we never take that step to say, hey, here's a good way to go about things. And you know, the reason is, Jim, I can almost guarantee most physicians have not gotten much nutrition training besides what's pellagra, what's a deficiency here, what's a deficiency <laughs> there. You know, I had one, I went to UC Davis 
for medical school, which is, you know, um, a nutrition powerhouse. And even in my medical education, I got one lecture on nutrition. And it was the reason that I actually decided to learn a little bit more about that through uh, some more advanced training. But I think the point being that, yeah, like if someone comes in for acne, I think you're right. Like, what a great question for you to start with that, because I think it does take them aback, but it also puts power back in their hands and kind of puts the ball in their court. So I've I've found that then they're a little bit more engaged with their acne. Um, Your comment about vegan, gluten free, you can have a vegan diet and be horribly unhealthy. I mean, you could be like, like for acne, you could be carb loading on a vegan diet and your acne is going to go not good. You know, it's going to, it's going to be flared or you could be gluten-free and eating like the worst foods out there. That's gluten-free and it still couldn't be like, so I do mention this to people and I tell them that, you know, when we're thinking about, for example, acne, you know, there is uh, evidence now around say dairy or high glycemic load foods. And then I give them tips on how do you lower the glycemic load? What are little things that you can just incorporate into your diet to lower the glycemic load of your food? And then, of course, we have to talk about medications. I mean, you know, when I was in residency, it was like totally swung the other way. They said diet had no impact on acne. Oops, we, I think, missed the boat on that one. But diet also doesn't cure acne. And I think that's the other part of it that like you have to have, you know, still going to have to do the, 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 I hate to use the pun intended, I guess, bread and butter, but you still got to, you know, go with the, like you said, column A, column B, you know, uh, we still got to do column A, column B. It's just now we have a column C that we can say, hey, the diet's going to make an impact too. I'll give you a small example that made we'll call it. That, we'll call that column D for diet. Column right? D, I like right? it. Yeah, because column I want to give you an example of a, a, a case that really, I think, made me understand the power of what we do, Jim. This was a, literally a five-minute visit. I mean, it was a five-minute acne visit. And I think there's a, a, a misconception that doing integrative medicine takes a lot of time. I see my patients in the 15-minute windows or 10-minute windows. I can still do this because all you have to do is drop in a couple things. I had a patient that was overweight, came in for acne. I noticed some acanthosis nigricans on the neck, and he was pretty overweight. He was like a 16-year-old overweight. And I turned to the mother and I said, is there a history of diabetes in the family? And they said, yes. So I turned to him and I said, listen, we're getting some skin markings. I think you're on the pathway to some really badness if we don't take an advantage of this. And also, if you can change your diet, your acne is going to improve. We're going to start you on some topicals, but I really want you to take this to heart because we need to clean up some of your diet. And I just went through a couple um, suggestions. He came back to him, no joke. In three months, the guy had lost about 25 pounds. His mom looked thinner and he said, you know what I did? He said, Doc, I changed my diet. I got the whole family to start shifting. Everyone is losing weight. I mean, Jim, these are the kind of things that, I mean, it's just a passing comment, but who else was he going to see? I mean, he he didn't have any medical issues per se. He was a young kid. He was coming in for acne. This was his only shot to really for us to like change his trajectory on how he thinks about himself. I, I think that's so important. And what really is good there, I mean, if you have all the chocolate chip cookies and whatever he's chowing down on that is still in the cabinet and you're expecting him not to go to that cabinet, but everybody else is, it's really hard for somebody to battle that. But when there's a whole team, the family is on board. If it's not there and you get that, it, I mean, it happens to me. I want some haagen If I go to the freezer or the refrigerator and it's not there, I can't have it, right? <laughs> so that moment of weakness, if you take that temptation away, it really does make a difference. But I'm going to spill the beans here. I asked you about this, and it has to do with my hair. And 
people say to me, I'm almost 70 years old, Jim, how do you, you know, still have your hair? Well, I have great genetics with it, yeah. but I did take finasteride since, since it first came out. The first time I saw a hair on the shower floor, well, I got to stop. I'm not, I don't want to lose my hair. But then I noticed over the years, now several years later, and I didn't know if it was the power of suggestion about hearing about all this post-finasteride and depression, etc. I didn't know, but I, I didn't feel that great. I felt grumpier than the normal grumpy Jim Del Rosso, right? I, I was a little shorter. I just wasn't sleeping right. Actually, was getting nightmares. And I said, you know, I'm just going to stop it, right? And but I called a couple of people, and I I knew for myself, but a couple of people that do a lot of hair, especially Mata Natasha Mezinkowska down. I know her very well down, and she does a lot of hair. Right. I said, I'm going to start Minoxidil. What do you think? What have you seen? She goes, yeah, start it. So I did. 2.5 BID I got on. But I started – I felt better within two or three months, right? I started the finasteride again every other day within a month all those symptoms came back. So he said, mm. well, whether it's psychological or not, I'm going to, but when I was talking to you, you told me about a supplement, right? And I shared, I said, Are there, is there anything that there is good data on? So you gave me a recommendation and can you share that again? Because you said that particular supplement has good scientific evidence. And these are things that patients appreciate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, even thinking about hair, you know, you have the growth to resting phase and the resting phase to the growth phase. And really, at the end of the day, if you want to be synergistic, you got to hit from both columns. See, there's a column A and a column B for hair too, Jim. So, and I think a lot of us, when we just do finasteride, we're just choosing column A because we're blocking that DHT pathway, but we don't have anything re-stimulating the hairs to grow back up into the, come out of the resting phase. So I think that's where minoxidil comes in. So on the other side with the DHT, there are some other supplements that have been shown um, in studies to be helpful. So one of them is pumpkin seed oil orally. It was 400 milligrams in the study. Uh, when you take 400 milligrams, it was a double blind placebo controlled. And what they found was a 40% improvement in the hair thickening and, uh, and the hair density. And so, you know, I think it's a smaller study. But nevertheless, it was done in a very, uh, I would say, reputable way, the design. And on the market, what can you find? Well, you don't have 400 milligrams, but here's the good news. Everything on the market is either 500 milligrams or 1,000. And then if you take pumpkin seed oil, one of the phytochemicals that's in the pumpkin seed oil that's not in a lot of the other oils is something called Delta-7 phytosterol, and that blocks that T to DHT pathway. Not only that, you'll get some carotenoids with it, like zeaxanthin and uh, beta carotene will come along with it because that's in pumpkins as well. So you get a little boost in other areas, but you have the evidence for, um, for hair. Now, I'm going to say another thing. Um, they've done another study looking at pumpkin seed oil because one might ask, okay, it blocks DHT. Well, what about acne? Well, they've actually applied pumpkin seed oil topically. And what they found was that it improved acne on the face. So what I do now is when people use retinoids, I do a follow through with cold pressed pumpkin seed oil. You can get high quality from like one of the sources is Mountain Rose Herbs. I have no conflict of interest, but they do, uh, they do like very good testing. Uh, I've done research with them before and they have a cold pressed pumpkin seed oil. I just have them put the cold pressed pumpkin seed oil directly on their face afterwards or 
Take the capsule, poke a little hole in it, squeeze out the pumpkin seed oil, and there you go. You've got a little packet that you can just apply they, in your face. They just put it. They just put it on at night, or when do put they it use it? Put it on at night. You put the retinoid on and just follow through with the pumpkin seed oil. And it's one of those where you just have to educate the patient. Hey, not all oils are going to cause your acne to flare. This one's actually pretty well tolerated. You know, Roger, I, I, I just thinking about this. I think it would be great for you to put together. Giving you work to do, right? A top 10 list of things like this that you feel are very well substantiated in the literature. I, I really believe that um, maybe we'll come back and do this another time. Think about it. Oh, yeah. We'll no, we can do top a top 10. 10 top Absolutely. 10 list of things that you see valuable in dermatology yep. that you can put the references there and people could figure it out for themselves because that's really what people, you know, you've done the, you've done the work. Not everybody's going to have time to dig into it for that much detail. So uh, I think that's fantastic. One of the things I wanted to mention is like, um, uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, us as dermatologists, we do a lot of off-label stuff. You know, I mean, our, our world is a lot of off-label, even in the pharmaceutical world, we'll have like high quality evidence, but but then we'll use things off label. And I feel like, um, like you're saying, you know, the evidence here isn't going to be 500 patients, 1000 patients, two phase three randomized double blind, placebo controlled studies, but they're reasonably done studies that make it so that you have something that's practical for clinical practice. Right. So you remember when somebody's at the podium and they say, in my experience, they saw one case, <laughs> you know, and then in in my patients, they've seen two. And then if they see three, they say, in case after case after case, what I've seen <laughs> is, right? And then that's, that's sort of, you, you learn a lot from your own experience. I'm going to thank you very much for the conversation today. And I am going to get back to you if you're interested in that top 10 list, because I, I know that dermatologists would greatly appreciate your efforts. Oh, yeah. No, let's do the top 10. We'd uh, love to do it. Congratulations on the continuing success of your meeting, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks a lot, Roger. I appreciate that, Jim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.